Day three. Down to one kind bar and four ounces of chocolate milk. I'm all but done for. I've been wandering these halls with just this voice recorder to keep me company. And I'm recording what I find like the letter told me to, but man, this gets boring. I've started recording myself performing opera to pass the time. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> Do you know how many times you can perform the HMS Pinafore and not go crazy? <laughs> it's 1.3. <laughs> That's right, 1.3. <laughs> That's as far as I got. <laughs> oh, Oh, maybe I'll try to do cats instead. I do love me some Sir Dame Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> yes, I do. <sighs> but things just keep getting weirder. Yesterday, I saw three chairs glide across the floor with no one in them. And this suit of armor was just walking around the hall with a big old axe. But, but the creepiest thing of all, finding a room dedicated... To Paul Blart Mallcop. Who does that? On a somewhat positive note, though, I, uh, I found a dusty old desktop in the corner of the library that lets me access sites involving haunted or creepy things. I can even access the dark web, too. <laughs> Did you know that the Silk Road wasn't just a thing of the past? <laughs> it's, uh, still about trading. But instead of silk and spices... People trade body parts and heroin. <sighs> that's... That's not for me. So I can end up in these horrifying places online, but I can't check my email. Or ESPN. Or, or even my precious YouTube. Man, I could go for some booty pie right now. He's... He's still a thing, right? Now, speaking of the library... This is the only place I feel safe in this house. The, uh, the fireplace is always going, which is good, I guess. And I have this huge library full of books to read. Oh boy, I've gotten one or two down. Only another, uh, one, two, three, four, ten thousand or so more to go. <laughs> Whoever finds this recording, tell my mother I love her, and my great-great-great-great-grandfather that I hate him. Curse you, Capone, you, you stupid jerk. Curse you to heck. <laughs> Pardon my language. <laughs> Steady, man. Steady. Get yourself together. <clears throat> okay. No matter what happens, I believe that my heart will go on. Oh, bless you, Celine Dion. Bless you. Well, if I'm going to go to that forever home in the sky for stupid jerks who do whatever a mystery letter with no return address tells them to do, I want to know why. I've been finding out... A little about Capone as I explore his, I, I mean, my, my mansion. <laughs> See, Capone, he was a poor little lad from Ireland who sailed over to Chicago here in the good old U.S. of A. in 1893. 
Turns out Chicago had won the honor of hosting the World's Fair that year, beating out other powerhouse cities like New York and St. Louis. And the entire city of Chicago was buzzing with activity and the promise of shining on the global stage. There were buildings to erect, <clears throat> phrasing, parks to landscape, and money to be made. Turns out ultra-great-grandpa had dollar signs in his eyes when he saw a help-wanted advertisement hanging in the drugstore owned by Herman Webster Mudgett, better known then by his alias, Dr. H. H. Holmes. Capone and the doc hit it off, and before he knew it, Capone had the job of running the day-to-day -day operations in the three-story building Holmes had across the street from his drugstore, known as the Castle. I wanted to find out more about this kind benefactor who offered my great-grandpappy his first Western job. Through some rudimentary internet searches and information gathered from the fantastic book here that I found called The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, I was able to find out some things about H.H. that were, well, disturbing. You see, Dr. Holmes wasn't exactly what he seemed. He was a con man, a cheat, a womanizer, and a thief. No, yeah. He just might also be America's first serial killer, too. Herman Webster Mudgett, or the Mudge, as I like to call him, was born in New Hampshire in 1861. Bullied as a youngin, the Mudge's classmates once locked him in a closet with a human skeleton used to demonstrate the human anatomy. Oh, gross. Hermie, as I also like to call him, was understandably freaked out by this situation. I mean, wouldn't you be? Now, this terror soon turned to obsession, however, and Mudgett was able to put aside his fear of his skeleton and replace it with a morbid curiosity about death. He emerged from the closet as a changed person, but sadly, not for the better. This macabre fascination would set the stage for his profitable, albeit murderous, future. The Mudge graduated from high school at the age of 16 and enrolled in a small medical college in Vermont under his new name, Henry Howard Holmes. With Holmes being a nod to the classic Sir Arthur Conan Doyle sleuth, Sherlock Holmes. He was like the original Triple H. How cool is that? No? Just me? Okay. Holmes was then accepted to medical school at the University of Michigan, and he would pass his exams and graduate from there in 1884. Now, while most students who work their way through college get jobs as like waiters or bartenders or temps or something, this aspiring doctor had another way to earn some cash. Insurance fraud. Holmes and some accomplices would steal cadavers, or dead bodies for the uninformed, from the school's medical department and disfigure them in horrifying ways as if they were the victims of some sort of tragic accident. The bodies would then be discovered by some hapless bystander who would call the police or the paramedics. But it was too late, because they were already, you know, dead. Now, the genius of Holmes' plan was that he would take out life insurance policies on the victims, and he would collect a tidy sum, so a pretty fair amount of money, upon their discovery. Holmes and his crew did this a lot, and I mean a lot. And he would continue to do this trick all throughout his life. 
And who says crime doesn't pay? After graduating medical school, Holmes moved to Chicago, Illinois in 1885 and began working as a pharmacist in a small drugstore owned by Dr. Holton and his wife, Elizabeth. H.H. proved to be a hard worker and would use these earnings he made, and probably some cadaver cash, to eventually purchase the drugstore from its previous owners. He would then sell his stake in the business and use those proceeds to purchase a lot across the street, which gave him the space needed to create his murderous piece de resistance, the castle. This would prove to be no ordinary structure though. The castle was a mixed use building with storefronts on the first floor and apartments and even a hotel above. The spot was a prime location too, settled on the bustling corner of South Wallace Avenue and 63rd Street in the happening Inglewood neighborhood. Now, you would think that a building this size and scope would cost a fortune, right? Nah, son. The good doctor was a master at running out on his bills. He would come up with fake identities and then use them to purchase materials and furnishings to create his monstrous banner. When the bill collectors came calling, Holmes would just shrug and smile and say that the debtor was out on business and would be back soon. But they never were because they never existed. Holmes would then routinely hire and quickly fire the masons and the laborers constructing his building as well. He would accuse them of shoddy workmanship and refuse to pay their wages. What a jerk. Now, not only did this keep money in Holmes's pocket, but no one, and I mean no one, besides the doc, had a solid idea of the layout of the castle or the horrors that lay within. And man, there were a lot. I seem to be saying a lot. A lot. Sorry. The blueprints here included 51 doorways that opened to brick walls, 100 windowless rooms, some even designed to be airtight, uh, stairs that led to dead ends, two high temperature furnaces, and a body-sized chute leading directly to an incinerator. And only Holmes knew where all these things were and what horrible deeds they would be used for. Once the castle was completed, Holmes would then put out newspaper ads looking for young pretty ladies to come work in a store with the added benefit that they would also be able to find lodging in the rooms upstairs. Beyond being young and pretty though, there was one other requirement to work for H.H. Holmes too. You had to let him take out a life insurance policy on you. Hmm. I wonder why. So young women began moving into the castle in droves, many striking up personal relationships with the young, charismatic, and handsome Dr. Holmes. What they failed to realize, though, was that for a select portion of these tenants, this friendship would quickly lead to their doom. And then the murders began. But first, the bigamy! <laughs> Before H.H., as the kids say, uh, got good at murder, he mastered the art of having multiple wives. His first was named Clara Lovering, and the two were married from 1878 to 1891. During this time, they had a son named Robert, but Holmes quickly grew tired of the married life and did not bring his family with him when he moved to Chicago. The doctor began his life of polygamy when he married Murda Belknap in 1887 
And although he had started the divorce proceedings against his first wife, Clara, he never actually, well, completed the process. This pair would also have a child, daughter Lucy, in 1889. As all good things come in one to who threes, Holmes married his third consecutive wife, Georgini Yoke, in Denver, Colorado in 1894, while on the run from authorities and his other wives, presumably. Now with that out of the way, back to something more uplifting, like the murders. With the Columbian Exposition, aka the Chicago World's Fair drawing near, the city was in the midst of finalizing its celebration for the 400-year anniversary of Christopher Columbus discovering, and yes, I'm using air quotes here, the New World. With his castle finally complete, Holmes opened his sprawling property for business. Taken from the crimemuseum.org website, one of the few I can actually access here, he knew that many visitors would be searching for lodging near the fair and believed many of them would be women whom he could easily seduce into staying in his hotel. After being lured into the hotel, many of these out-of-town visitors would never be seen again. The basement of the building was designed as Holmes' own lab. It had a dissecting table, a stretching rack, and a crematorium. Sometimes he would send the bodies down the chute, dissect them, strip them of their flesh, and sell them as human skeletons to medical schools. In other cases, he would choose to cremate the bodies or place them into pits of acid. Gnarly, dude. Through it all, Holmes was earning a profit. His storefronts were bustling. His apartments and hotel rooms were rented out all throughout the fair, but this never was enough for Holmes. Holmes would find ways to murder his guests and his employees, always making it look like an accident and collecting on the insurance policies he had taken out on them. See, I told you he kept on doing it. Now, between the insurance fraud and selling of the skeletons to medical schools, Holmes was striking it rich. I found out that great-great-grandpappy Capone was running the day-to-day -day operations in the hotel part of the building, keeping track of guests and quickly turning over the rooms when they uh, checked out unexpectedly. While working at the hotel, Capone found out about the dreaded Chicago winters and how cold and brutal they were, and wanting to stay ahead of the game, decided that he would go ahead and move to a warmer climate, even though it was like a million degrees at Chicago at the time, and soon left Chicago for the tobacco country of Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Holmes was undeterred by this, and he picked up with a guy named Benjamin Pitzel, or Peitzel. I'm going Peitzel. There's like a million ways you can pronounce this name, but I'm going Peitzel because that's how I roll today. This guy would become his accomplice and sadly an eventual victim. From CrimeMuseum.org Once the World's Fair had ended, Chicago's economy was in a slump. Therefore, Holmes abandoned the castle and focused on insurance scams committing random murders along the way. Oh, how cute. During this time, Holmes would steal horses from Texas, ship them to St. Louis, and sell them, making a fortune. He was arrested for this swindle, oh, no one ever uses swindle anymore, and sent to jail. While in jail, he concocted a new insurance scam with his cellmate, Marion Hedgepeth. 
Holmes said he would take out an insurance policy for $10,000, fake his very own death, and then provide Hedgepeth with $500 in exchange for a lawyer who could help him just in case any problems arose with his plan. Once Holmes was released from jail on bail, he attempted his plan, but the insurance companies got wise and suspicious and never paid him. Holmes then decided to attempt a similar plan in Philadelphia. This time, he would have Peitzel fake his own death. However, during this scam, Holmes actually killed Peitzel and collected the money for himself. What a jerk. In 1894, Marion Hedgepeth, who was angry that he never received any money from their initial scam, told police about the scheme that he and Holmes had put together. The police then tracked down Holmes, finally catching up with him in Boston, where they arrested him and held him on an outstanding warrant for the Texas horse swindle. And if that's not a band name, I'm starting it now. Texas horse swindle. Cha -cha -cha -cha. At the time of this arrest, Holmes appeared as if he was prepared to flee the country and police became very suspicious of him. Chicago police investigated Holmes's castle where they discovered his strange and efficient methods for committing torturous murders. Many of the bodies that they located were so badly dismembered and decomposed that it was hard for police to determine exactly how many bodies were there in the murder castle. The police investigation spread through Chicago, Indianapolis, and all the way into Canada and Toronto. While conducting their investigation in Toronto, police discovered the body of the Peitzel children, who had gone missing sometime during Holmes's insurance fraud spree. Linking Holmes to their murders, police arrested them, and he was later convicted of their disappearance and their deaths. He also confessed to 28 other murders. However, through investigations and missing person reports, it's believed that Holmes may be responsible for up to two hundred additional murders. After confessions, tell-all interviews, and many, many unsuccessful appeals, in May of 1896, one of America's first serial killers, H.H. H. Holmes, was hanged from the neck until dead. The castle was then remodeled as an attraction and named the Holmes's Horror Castle. However, it burned to the ground shortly before its opening. In 2017, what was believed to be the body of H.H. Holmes was exhumed and tested to make sure it really was the doc. And wouldn't you know it? It was. Dental records matched up, and any rumors that H.H. Holmes escaped his fate were quickly put to rest. <sighs> so there you have it. Thanks to America's first serial killer, my great-great-great-great-grandpa Capone got his start here in the States. Yay! Now, I hate to think about it, but was he a part of any of Holmes's murderous schemes? I mean, I, I hope not, but this is the same guy who got rich targeting tobacco at children, so, you know, I'm sure there's some skeletons in his closet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even plan that, <laughs> you know, because because Holmes and skeletons get it. <laughs> ah, you'll get it later. Now, if you'll excuse me, while I still have my stuff together, I got to go find some food. 
I think I hear some 50s music coming from the kitchen. Maybe there's someone there that knows where to find some grub. Huh. I hope so. Well, recorder, I'm off on another adventure, but I'll be back soon. Same spooky time, same spooky channel, although it's a podcast and don't really have channels, but we're still going to say it anyway, as I bring you the best of our haunted history. Oh, I wonder what they have. Maybe they have like Twinkies or like pecan pie. Oh man, I haven't had like anything to eat in forever.